This is a recording made in the Church of the Opened Book and is number 14 of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. We have three together on this uh, chart and the study. The cross, the crown, and the Christ. Now if my memory serves me right, there's been a gap in this series. We did look at the references to the cross. I would remind you that while we would find no fault with an evangelist who preached the cross of Christ, you will discover that the word, the reference to the cross in the scriptures is addressed to the believer far more to the unsaved. It's Christ died for the ungodly and then he died on the cross in connection with the crucifixion of the old man and dying to the world and associated with the words we use, no cross, no crown. The epistle to the Hebrews, the cross of Christ is not mentioned until you come to chapter 12, although it's dealing with sacrifice and offering and priesthood. And in chapter 12, the cross of Christ is associated with the race before him. He endured a cross, despising the shame, and is set down. Well now, we are not trifling with this very wonderful theme, and uh, we'll move on from that to the associated passage, Crown. It so happens that under this artificial mode of heading, we've got these together. No cross, no crown. That is a trite saying, but it's very, very true. Before ever Christ was crucified, before ever he he reminded his disciples that he was to be crucified, he told them to take up their cross. So he had a meaning, you see, of enduring, of suffering, and so we must keep that very much in mind. Well now, we have the emphasis upon crown, Stephanos, and it's not uh, to be misunderstood, it's very much in harmony with the way scripture is written, that the very first Christian martyr, his name meant a crown. Of course he was called Stephanos long before perhaps he ever heard of the gospel. Most surely he was a man. But it's not accidental. He was stoned for his faith and he looked up to the right hand of God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He name meant a crown. And so it was carrying on the thought, no cross, no crown. And the element of reward that comes in the scripture must not be shirked. I know it's quite easy to say virtue is its own reward, but that doesn't harmonize with scripture. The epistle to the Hebrews, coming back to that epistle again, it says that they that come unto God must believe that he is. Now that's the first thing, because if you don't believe that God is, there's nothing about nothing in the Bible for you. Then the special aspect of teaching in Hebrews is not only that God is, but he's a rewarder. Now, that has been lifted out as though it's one of the definitions of the Godhead. It belongs to Hebrews. And you go on further in Hebrews and your attention is drawn to Moses. Although he was offered to be adopted into the royal family, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God 
for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And then in the same epistle of the Hebrews, there are some who refused deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now that brings us back to our own epistles. For we have a crown, we have a race, and we have a prize, and a better resurrection. In other words, the word is about resurrection. So shall we turn our attention to that subject this afternoon? Uh, whether we shall get to the one on the bottom of the sheet, the emphasis upon the title Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, well, I can't say. Uh, but we won't rush it. We'll honour the scriptures and we'll seek to understand their bearing. So will you first of all turn with me to the classic passage in the New Testament with regard to the race and the crown, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We might, of course, say, join in the hymn, not for weight of glory, not for crown or palm, enter we the army, join the warrior's psalm. That's true enough, we don't do it for that purpose. But we mustn't say that we're so refined and such wonderful Christians that we wouldn't think of a crown or a prize because that is utterly contrary to the teaching of Scripture. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Now the contrast there is between the all and the one. We can all enter the race, but it doesn't follow we're all going to win. And on the other hand, if before we start running a race, we know full well every single one of us are going to win when it ceases to be a race, doesn't it? I remember in the early days when I was connected with a Sunday school, the superintendent was one of those tender-hearted persons that although after the children, or more of them, got so many black marks that not one of them should ever go to the Sunday school treat, they all went, every man jack of them, and they knew it before ever they started, you see. Well, you say that was human. But God means what he says. That there is a salvation which is a gift, which you don't have to run for, you don't have to work for. But there is a something which accompanies salvation, where you work out that salvation which God has given you, and in the epistle when it says, work out your own salvation, it says there's a prize. So it's in harmony. So let this one speak for first, shall we? I'll go back again. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize, so run that you may obtain. Now some person may extract from that, well what's the good of me? If only one's going to get a prize, I can't think of competing with the Apostle Paul, so I'm out of it. Oh, that's not the argument. He's simply saying that in any race, everybody enters it who is qualified, but it doesn't follow they're going to win. So he says, you run with that in view. And every man that striveth for the mastery, and this is an expression that occurs again in the Second Timothy, striving for the mastery, this is to do with athletics, is temperate in all things. And you may have read, of course, when the tennis tournament was on, of how they abstained from this and they didn't eat that and they got up and they did so many runs around the park and they skipped and they washed themselves in freezing cold water and all sorts of things just to be fit to win, if possible, that tournament. And that was true in the days of the Apostle. They had to go through great uh, uh, acts of discipline. 
in order to be qualified to start the race. Now they do it to, ob- to obtain a corruptible crown. It wasn't even made of gold that they could do anything with. It was a wreath made of leaves. Possibly laurel leaves. Sometimes it was wild parsley that made the wreath. They did it for a corruptible crown. Just for the honour of doing it. But he says, look at the contrast. We, for an incorruptible. An incorruptible. Now the crown which is mentioned in the New Testament is described as a crown of life, a crown of glory. And so we realise that we are passing from the mechanical or the material to the spiritual. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Or when the chief shepherd shall appear, then he will give us, he says, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That's Peter. And Paul says, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So you get these crowns defined in different ways. And in one occasion, Paul will refer to the believers in Thessalonica, he said, you are my crown. Meaning to say, I shall get a, a thrill of reward if I meet you in the glory. And you can quite see that he's only using this expression, the race and the crown, to symbolise that which has to do with our faithfulness, our running the race that's set before us, not looking to one hand or the other, keeping our eyes on the mark and so on. So he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. Any uncertainty in a race fitly means you're out of it. You know the old Greek story of the lady who had her suitors come and one of the things they had to beat her in running the race. And they most likely could have beat her. I don't know. But she knew human nature. As they were gaining upon her, she just threw an apple made of gold. And they hesitated. They thought, well, that's a good chance. So they stopped for a moment, picked up the apple and off they went again. They never won. And the evil one keeps on throwing across the path of the believer the apple of gold. Uh, turn you this side, turn you that side. So he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. And I said to one of the folks at the, uh, I was going to say the nursing home where I've been at the seaside, but it wasn't that, it was a guest house. I said to him, you know, you say to me, when you die you're going to heaven and the meek shall inherit the earth and that means me. I said, you don't know whether you're coming or going. What, which is your hope? You see, it's more mixed up. Not as uncertainly. Not as uncertainly, you must know. So fight I. Not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. And the word is a very extraordinary word used in this verse 27. Hupopiadzo is the portion under the eye, just here, that easily blackens. And that's what the apostle used, a boxer's term. He said, I give myself a black eye. He's not giving somebody else one, notice. He's gradually changing the figure. He says, I'm the one that's got to be fought. I'm the one that's got to be kept in his right place. I'm the one that's got to be beaten. So you'll find when he speaks about putting on armour. In writing to the Romans. He says, not in chambering and wantonness, but 
fighting against the flesh and fighting against the thing in myself, I'm the biggest enemy, not the one outside. So here he says, I can easily trip myself up, but I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, after I have heralded others, now in the Greek sports, there was a herald who came forward and proclaimed that those contestants who were now ready for the sports had lived clean lives, were qualified by residence and by upbringing and by various other things to take their place in the sports. Everybody couldn't enter it. So he says, after I have heralded others, I myself should be, now our version says, a castaway. And that has caused great searchings of heart among people. They think it's possible for a person to be, to be saved today and lost tomorrow. Well, that depends whether you're saved by your own acts or saved by God. Our salvation depends upon the finished work of Christ. Our faith is only the hand that receives the gift of God. And Christ has said in other passages, and one of them is enough, My sheep hear my voice. They shall never perish, and none shall pluck them out of my hand. So, watch this word castaway. It's the word that he uses in another form in 2 Timothy 2.15, when he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. Approved. This is the negative. Disapproved. He said, I might be disqualified myself. That doesn't mean to say he's lost his, his salvation or lost his life. But in connection with running the race, he may be out of it. Now, it's a pity that the chapter ends there. Because if you are among those who read a chapter at a time and have got a very bad memory, you might forget that chapter 10 is going on with the subject. You notice that I drew your attention earlier to the all and the one in verse 24. Well, he's going back to that subject. Look, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For that, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. You see the emphasis? They all came out of Egypt. They were all covered by the Passover lamb. They all had lived in a house and God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. They were all a redeemed people. They went miraculously across the Red Sea, dry shod. They stood on the other side, and the waters covered their enemies. They were a redeemed people. They never went back to Egypt, except looking across and turning back in heart and saying, we remember the fish we did eat freely, the onions and the garlic and all the tasty bits we've left behind. But they never went back, really. They were there. But here's this tragedy. They came out of Egypt. They were a redeemed people. How many of those who came out of Egypt went into the land of promise? Do you know how many? Two. And we know their names. Caleb and Joshua. These, instead of going into the land of promise, it says in the book, the Old Testament, that it was 11 days' journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. 
They had been brought out by God, as he said he would. He'd take them to Mount, to that same Mount Horeb where Moses saw the burning bush. And there he gave them the law and entered into a covenant with them that they should be his people. That was up to then, all right. Now, he said, eleven days and you'll be at Kadesh Barnea. And they got there. One more day they could have been into the land of promise and enjoying the inheritance. What happened? The spies came back and gave a report. Two of them urged the people to believe God and say he's well able to take us in. But the other spies, the ten, all they brought back an evil report. In spite of the bunch of grapes which showed what a land it was, they magnified the difficulties and the enemies until at last. God says, I'll turn you back into the wilderness. And they never entered. Then when you come to Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, they're written by Moses, not by David. And Psalm 90 says we spend our days, our years as a tale that is told. We pass our days in thy wrath. Thou hast turned us back to this destruction. Psalm 91 says, to the children that were living all that time in the wilderness, that 40 years, you need not be afraid of the arrow that flieth by night or the pestilence that walketh by noonday. Only with thine eyes shalt thou see the destruction of the wicked. They said, you brought our children out to die in the wilderness. God says, you will die in the wilderness and your children that you've said like that are going to be preserved all the time and they'll go in. You see, friends, there's a solemn thought in this scripture of trifling with salvation after you've got it. These people were his people. They forfeited the land. There's one, at least, one person that forfeited the land that no one could say was not a saved man. That was Moses himself. Isn't that extraordinary? Moses himself, because of his high position, failed. And he went up to the top of the mountain and he saw the goodly land. And God buried him there himself. They're going to sing the song of Moses in the land, in the book of the Revelation. And Moses, as I say, man, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he couldn't go in. So we can't trifle with this subject, although we don't act in despair. And we read a bit further. Verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also did. You see, here's the warning to us. Now I'm coming, skipping a lot. Verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples or ensamples. Don't worry about an example and an ensample. If you ask me what the difference is, I don't know. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, He's going to give the Christian a little word of warning. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. It isn't let him who standeth take heed lest he fall, but lest he be boastful. Lest he be not aware of the frailty of his own nature. Lest he begin to stand in his own strength. Oh no, watch out. Verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Of course, that is a word in season for us all the time. Our own afflictions, our own trials, well, they're our own, and they loom large, and I suppose it must ever be so. 
But it is good for us to remember we belong to a whole creation that's groaning. And we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, namely the redemption of our body. And to, to, to come to a modern illustration, haven't you ever said, or perhaps you've said it yourself, Oh dear, oh dear, when I went into hospital, I began to be ashamed of myself. When I saw some of the folks there, and the things that they were suffering, I began to realise how much I've been speaking about my own little complaints in contrast. So he says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. On more than one occasion, your own individual ability is recognised by God. He gives the gifts of the Spirit according to every man's several ability. To one he gives one, to one he gives another. What would make one person succumb and, and sink under it, another person can carry it. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Well, now I've got rather a, a, a sort of mind that says, well, if I escape it, I don't bear it, do I? If you escape a thing, do you bear it? Well, that's the very thing without me, so we're trying to dodge it, aren't we? We're trying to get rid of it. So, of course, you know what I do, I hope. I say, let's have a look and see what this word is, that you may, a way to escape. And I find it occurs nowhere else in Scripture except in Hebrews 13 where it is translated the end of their faith. Now it doesn't mean that they never had any faith anymore. It was the goal or the object or something in front of them. Let's come back again to this one. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation shape the end. Now right from the days of Job until now, that's the truth. If Job had only known what was written in the first chapter of the book called Job, if he'd only known about Satan going into the presence of God and demanding that Job should be tested, he wouldn't have had all the worry that he had. And if his three friends had known it, they wouldn't have accused Job of being a secret sinner as they did. He didn't know that. But we know it. It's written for our learning. And so we've got to make this Continually, keep this in our mind continually, that with the temptation, he shapes the end. And if you only listen to the man outside in the street, any amount of his objections is he does not know that there is an end. He's frustrated. Why should this happen to me? Why should that happen to this one? But the scripture says, even though you don't know personally, there is an end that God is moving to. And that end... If ever an end justifies the means, it is that end. And so it helps us. Job again I go back to. He says in one chapter, I go to the right, I look to the left, I look in front of me, I look behind me. I can't see any way out, he said. And then he said this, but he knoweth the way that I take. I don't know, but he does. And when he has tried me, here's the word tempting coming again, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
Now that word coming forth as gold is the trying of a metal. And in Job's day it would be a little earthen pot and a charcoal fire with a man sitting cross-legged in the primitive little bellows that he just pressed. And if you'd seen him at work, he, he wouldn't have a thermometer and he wouldn't have any mathematics. He'd just skim the top and take the scum off. And then he, another blast of the, of the bellows, more skim, takes it off. You say, you might have gone up to him and said, how do you know it's done? Oh, he said, as soon as I see the reflection of my own face, I know it's done. Oh my, what a wealth of teaching in that. When God sees the reflection of his own image, we're ready for glory. And when that takes place, shan't we be glad that the scum's been rising to the surface so many times and taken away? So he says, no temptation at the moment is joyous, but rather grievous. God knows that. But, he said, it works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen. Oh, I can keep quoting the scriptures that put these two things before us. So here we have then this passage, 1 Corinthians 9. But shall we move on to the one that has to do with the prison epistles and the dispensation of the mystery? Because I have met this from those who rejoice in the teaching that we associate with Ephesians. That there is no prize or crown in connection with our calling. And it's not possible that anybody should lose in connection with our calling. So instead of looking at Philippians for the moment, I'm turning to Colossians. And when I start looking at Colossians, I've got a most absolute position in Christ that nothing can alter. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet. He's done it. I haven't. You haven't. He hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So that's our position. He's redeemed us, he's reconciled us, and verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, he's to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now there's where we stand in Christ. But if you look at chapter 3, verse 22, servants, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. But you may say to me, ah, oh, but this is to do with service. Yes, friends, the crown and the prize has to do with service, not salvation. You're saved by grace. And only when you're saved by grace can you start serving and think of getting any reward whatever. So it's in the right place. So he says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ, full stop. You say, what do you say that for? Or they say, oh yes, I can quite understand a member of the body of Christ receiving the reward of the inheritance. And you don't like the last verse, do you? <coughs> well, whether you like it or not, it's written. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. Oh, but I'm a member of the body of Christ and there is no respect of persons. Now that's what's written. 
So do keep distinct salvation by grace that you can neither win nor lose and a prize and a crown which is held out if you will patiently endure and run the race and keep in mind all these uh, other aspects, the working out of this great salvation. Well now we've still got Philippians to look at because that deals with the prize particularly. And you will notice in the first chapter and the first verse that it differs from the introduction of Ephesians and Colossians in this sense. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, the very first title they get here is servants. And to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. You get no bishops and deacons in Ephesians, no bishops and deacons in Colossians, no bishops and deacons in Second Timothy. But dear, stressing service. So when you turn the page and you see um, chapter 2, he says, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Chapter 2 of Ephesians says, Your salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But it says there is a, a work that you can do after you're saved. But you can't work for your salvation. Blessed be God, you can work out the salvation which is given you. And this would have a, a particular meaning to the Philippians, because as far as I've read in history, the city of Philippi drew a revenue because they had a gold mine. I don't know how big it was or what it yielded, but it yielded a revenue. But you know, a gold mine might be under your very property where you live, but if you never work it out, it might just as well not exist. And don't all start digging up your garden, friends, although that might turn it into treasure that you can use on your table afterwards. But here it is. He says, work out your own salvation. Notice what he says, with fear and trembling. You're not on the ground of salvation by grace. You're on the ground of your own attempt to put into practice the truth you see. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring. Stranger that coming? No, no, the apostle was still thinking back to the people in the wilderness. Have you noticed how many times it says they murmured in the wilderness? They murmured these times, said God, and I'm finished with them. A person who murmurs against the discipline of God is really asking for trouble, isn't he? Because murmuring cannot walk together with saying, I trust him. I'm sure he's a God of love. I see that when he gave his son, he gave his all. I dare not murmur because this difficulty or that difficulty crosses my path without contradicting the fact that I'm supposed to be fully trusting him. So he says, watch out for murmuring and disputing. That you may be harmless, blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. Don't stop there, you see. You can't make yourself blameless. That's what you read in Ephesians. That's what you read in Colossians, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blame. He does that. You say, why is it here? Oh, we must see 
that you must be blameless and harmless for sons of God without rebuke. You can't make yourself sons of God. But you might be sons of God that are not living up to the standard. So he says, sons of God without rebuke. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Among whom not merely you shine as lights in the world, but shine positively, telling them to do so as lights in the world. Well, that leads us on to chapter 3. And in Philippians chapter 3, he says, among other things, verse 10, that I may know him. Paul is speaking personally concerning Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He doesn't say that I may know him and the historical fact of his resurrection. Of that he was perfectly certain. The risen Christ. But it's one thing to know that Christ is risen. And another thing to be associated with the power that now can be given to you from him. He said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He even desired the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, of course, we could be morbidly minded and we could be numbered among those people who are only happy when they're miserable. And you met them, haven't you? That wasn't the Apostle Paul. But he realised, I suppose, in a measure that if he didn't suffer with Christ now, that's one thing he would never know throughout all eternity, neither would you. And to be able to stand with Christ in a world that rejected him was far more honour to the Apostle Paul than all the weight of glory that this world could have given him. He wasn't a morbidly minded man. He was rejoicing in salvation and in a saviour. And he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So he said, I desire this power of the resurrection that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Why, Post Paul? Oh, he said, I've got an object in front of me. If by any means I might attain. Now, if by any means I might attain, surely shows you that there is some doubt about it. Here the Apostle Paul himself says there's some doubt about it. And in order that you may be very sure of this, will you turn to the last chapters of the Acts of the Apostles? The 28th chapter, where the Apostle is involved in a shipwreck. Uh, the 28th chapter, or 27th chapter really, they were on their way, 27th and 28th is this journey to Rome. Now the uh, ship's getting into difficulties. Verse 9 of chapter 27. And now when much time was, was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous because the, the fast was now already passed, uh, that may not mean much to us, but they had to sail according to the times of the year because it was so dangerous. And when the fast was passed, they say, the sailing generally ceased. Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Well, of course, he was only a little old Jew, and he was a prisoner. So the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven 
was not commodious to winter in. There were no sort of special homes provided for poor sailors to be able to play billiards and I don't know what on this island. The more part advised the departments also, if by any means they might attain, have they got the words? They're identical. If by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete and lies toward the southwest and northwest, and when the south wind blew softly, all oh, our light life that is, when you want to disobey God, you'll find the south wind will blow softly and prove that you're right. Watch out for that soft wind, friends. And when the soft wind blew softly, supposing that they had attained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close and so they got so involved that they nearly lost their lives, lost the ship and everything. So the Apostle Paul, within just a little time of those things happening to him, wrote these words. He was the prisoner in Acts 28. And in Acts 27, if by any means I might attain. He knew. It was written in his own experience. So he meant what he said, that he was not certain of the prize. So if the Apostle Paul was not certain of the prize, you could understand that it's not quite right for young Christians, as soon as they're converted, <coughs> to stand up and sing they're going to wear a crown, because that, that's rather anticipating a little. The crown is something that even the Apostle Paul says, oh no, I've not already gained that. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Well, here's a problem. The Apostle Paul couldn't possibly mean that he was struggling and striving and hoping and running to be raised from the dead. But that's the very, that's the very hope of every believer. If we are, have no certain hope of the resurrection, we're of all men most miserable, he said. So again you say, I better look and see what the original is. And when you look at the original, you find it's not merely the resurrection of the dead. If by any means I might attain to that out-resurrection, which is out from among the dead. Ex, Anastasis, ectonecron. And you can get an example. When our Saviour came down from the mountain, he said to them, don't tell any man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And they looked at one another and said, oh, what's it mean to be risen from the dead? And you say to them, you're disciples of Christ, yes, and you don't even believe what the Pharisees believe. Oh, that's because you missed it. They knew about the resurrection, but our Lord split the word ek in there. Out-resurrection. Something that was not to take place in the last day, like Martha said. See, the Saviour said to Martha, do you believe your brother shall rise again? She said, yes, Lord, in the last day. When he rose that very day, you see, that was a difference, wasn't it? So, this is like Hebrews chapter 11, a better resurrection, something extra. If by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection, that one which is out from among the dead. Now he says, not as though I had already attained. Well, he told you that in 1 Corinthians, didn't he? You all run, but you don't all touch the tape. Other, either were already perfect. And it doesn't mean to say he wasn't perfect in Christ. He hadn't reached the goal or the end. But I follow after, if that by I may apprehend, lay hold of that, for which also I am laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended that this one thing I do, forgetting. And again, this man knew all the history of his own people. And you remember the tragic words 
that are said of Israel in the wilderness. We remember. We remember what we've left behind in Egypt. And they forgot the bitterness. And they thought about the onion and the garlic. We remember. He says, have a good forgettery over this. Turn your back on it. Otherwise it will attract you back again. So he says, this one thing, I forget those things which are behind and reach forth unto those things which are before. Our version says, I press toward the mark. Better still, according to a mark, I press toward the prize. There was a white mark in the middle of the road when these athletes ran. And if anyone stepped over that white mark in those days, like today, they were disqualified. That's the mark. Then he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So there, Philippians leaves us. We are not certain the Apostle Paul himself reached it. But we are thankful that he wrote one more epistle. And we've got two or three minutes without shooting over our time. Shall I say, well, we won't look at that. We'll all go home and not know. Oh, no, you say, let's use those two or three minutes. Second Timothy, the last epistle he wrote before he died for the truth. Second Timothy. <clears throat> when he started this prison ministry in Acts 20, he said these words. None of these things move me. Although I know bonds and affliction await me, none of these things move me. Neither do I value my life as dear to myself, that I might finish my course with joy. The word course is the word dromos. And we use it today in the word hippodrome. Hippo meaning horse, and drome is the word course, a race course. That's the word here. 2 Timothy 4. Verse 6, I am now ready to be offered. He said in Philippians, he would desire to be, he was willing to be offered. I am now ready to be. And the time of our departure is at hand. He said in Philippians, I would be willing to depart. The two words are brought in again from Philippians, here. I have fought a good fight, but this is not a fight in the military sense. It's the agonistic word, I have contested a good contest, and the very word fight is translated in Hebrews, the race that was set before him. You don't fight a race, you enter into the conflict and the contest of a race, and that's what he said. I have contested a good contest. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Well, what about it, Paul? Oh, he says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He knew it. He touched the tape at the end, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And now he brings you and me into it. And not to me only, but unto all them also that have loved, that's say, looking back over their whole life, have loved his appearing. He say, just that, friends, just that. If the loving of his appearing dominated all our plans, all the way we spend our money and our time, we shouldn't want any other thing to keep our feet uh, in the track and our eyes on the goal. Now, I was thinking that we would very quickly cover the crown passage and deal with the title Christ Jesus. 
But I hope I haven't been tedious and we've spent too long and even now I haven't got to the passage that was, been, that was on this chart where he distinguishes between dying with him and living with him. So I must postpone that till we meet together in this same series next time, pick those words up and carry on to the distinctive title under this form of sound words, not merely Jesus, not merely Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus, the title coming first and the name second. May the Lord bless once more all you dear friends, not only those sitting in this chapel, but those afar off, even to the ends of the earth from our point of view, who have in front of you the same blessed hope and the same possibility of standing in the presence of the Lord and receiving his well done, good and faithful servant.